Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government has announced a take-home COVID-19 testing kit for some high school students who are exposed to COVID-19, no matter their vaccination status. What's the purpose? Well, we'll discuss that. Can Elections Canada keep up with democracy? Great op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail that we're going to dissect for you. And Prime Minister Trudeau says Canada is prepared to keep its military in Afghanistan after August 31st deadline. Ryerson University political professor Wayne Petrosi joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're very close to the beginning of the new school year, and there's a lot of nervousness, a lot of trepidation, uh, parents, teachers, and a whole lot of other people involved in the education system uh, because there's some concerns about just how safe it's going to be to be back in the classroom. Well, uh a number of people have weighed in on this. Uh, Dr. Abu Shikari uh, on the program suggesting that Ontario is not ready to welcome students back to the classroom. How do you as a parent feel comfortable knowing that nothing has been done to change class sizes, knowing nothing has been done fundamentally to change ventilation systems, and knowing nothing has been done to protocolize some form of testing? I mean, it's a terrible position to be in, and I think, sadly, our policymakers keep thinking, well, something is just going to take care of things. And now it's the thought that if everyone else is vaccinated, well, the kids will be fine. Well, guess what? That's complete nonsense. We know how the Delta variant works. It looks for the weakest point in our chain of protection. And right now, that's our kids. They're under the age of 12 who are not vaccinated. A lot of people feeling the same way as uh, the good doctor there. Uh, so what are the school boards doing, and, and what is the ministry doing to try to make school safe for kids? And is it enough? Uh, please to welcome back to the program Dr. Martha Fulford, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Glad you could be with us. Thank you for asking. Uh, do you share the uh, the good doctor's uh, nervousness and trepidation about uh, preparations or lack thereof for school? Well, no, I probably come from this uh, from a slightly different angle. Okay. And one of the questions I've always asked when people talk about safe, I always sort of, you know, want to push back a little bit and say, safe from what and safe for who and you know a year and a half into this it is very clear and this is true in ontario it is true in canada it is true internationally despite unfortunately some alarming headlines that if a child or an adolescent gets covid the chance of 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 having a bad outcome is minuscule and i appreciate that people are looking at really alarming headlines but Headlines are unfortunate because they don't give you context, they don't give you the denominator, they don't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of children are just fine. But even in Canada right now, if you look at the numbers for our country, uh, we, we do monitor, of course, and as of uh, August 15th, in of the hospitals that report, there were 11 t- people under the age of 18 admitted to hospital either with or from COVID, because, of course, anybody who tests positive is reported. Mm-hmm. That's it. And we can look internationally. We can look at the United Kingdom has already had its huge Delta spike. We can look at the Netherlands. We can look at Sweden. We can look at Switzerland. And so we're not siloed. And so it's not to say that COVID isn't very, very real. Of course, it's very real. But we have to also understand what is harming our children. And so if if we're saying we want our kids to be safe, then I'm going to push back and say, then we have to look at everything that is harming our children and do the maximum we can for total harm minimization. And quite frankly, if you look at the health and well-being of our kids right now, what is harming our children is not COVID. It is 
social isolation. It is mental health problems. It is eating disorders. On the other scale, it's obesity. It's the complete lack of positive peer relationships. It's huge problems with, uh, you know, positive peer relationships. It's being able to have friends and relationships and normal interactions. It's huge and probably for a lot of children, unfixable educational interruption. It's a complete lack of, of extracurriculars. And we have to also remember this is Ontario, which is the only province that has been this restricted for kids. Nowhere else in Canada have we done this to our children uh, with regards to the school closures and the lack of activity. And so I would push back and say schools, the virus, and the kids are no different in Ontario than anywhere else. Not to say that we ignore COVID. Of course we don't. But we do need to learn from other jurisdictions and we do need to ensure that everything we do is total harm minimization. And we have to look at the objective numbers and not the fear-based numbers. The objective numbers clearly indicate that even with Delta, even if a child gets it, it is really just a a respiratory virus with no, I mean, with very unlikely to have any consequences. And of course, the fear that we had earlier was the potential transmission to vulnerable adults because it's Mm -hmm. the vulnerable adults who end up in hospital. And any vulnerable adult who chooses to be vaccinated can have been vaccinated by now. Let's talk about the vaccination process because there are some people that are suggesting, and who, by the way, agree with you, uh, and, and I'm one of them, but it thinks that the, that the government overreacted last year in closing the schools down as quickly as they did for as long as they did. Uh, and Because there were more than a few of your colleagues, a doctor, and you were one of them on our program, mm-hmm. uh, that suggested that, that probably the safest place for the kids during that pandemic was in school, not at home. Uh, yeah. But that was the, that's the policy, and thank God most of them are going back into the classroom right now. Mm-hmm. But what about the vaccination program? Now, we understand for 12 and under, it's just not available right now. Uh, yesterday on the program, Dr. Uni suggested maybe by the end of the year, but let's deal with the here and now. Uh, what about mandatory vaccinations for, for the other people in that environment? We're talking about teachers, uh, uh, staff, uh, custodians, things of that nature. Uh, is, is that necessary? Is that something we should be aspiring toward? So when we think of any public health measure um, that we put in that's mandatory, I guess for me there are three questions to ask. One, is it actually necessary? And by that I mean what are the voluntary vaccination rates? Uh, and if you actually look at the numbers in Ontario for first dose, we're, we're actually doing remarkably well. So, so if you put in a mandatory measure, is that actually going to be effective or is it polarizing? Uh, number two, are there other ways we can do it without actually doing mandatory? Because it, it does set an odd precedent to mandate a medical intervention. I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm just saying we have to have a really careful consideration of, of the implications uh, and whether it's necessary. And then third, of course, is whether it will actually work. We don't, and what the objective is. So if we do mandatory vaccines, what are we, what's the objective? Will it actually decrease uh, transmission? Or will it uh, ironically inadvertently lead to maybe increased transmission because we're pushing people who are unvaccinated to socialize together, but maybe illicitly, so increasing transmission, and are vaccinated people going to be less cautious because they're vaccinated? Because we have to understand the vaccine doesn't make the virus go away. Mm -hmm. The vaccine prevents severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And I, I do think it reduces the risk of transmission, the amount of transmission, but it's not zero. So again, 
we have mandatory programs, it's really important to, to think through why we're doing this and whether or not it will have the intended effect and what the public health request is I and mean, what, what, what the rationale for doing this. Uh, so, But we've got a lot of other workplaces, uh, uh, you know, not yeah. necessarily in the education that are insisting on that right now and, uh, you know, that they there are. has to be proof of vaccination. Yeah. I, and and I, we, I know this is wordsmithing, but I guess we have to be clear about this. Uh, if you have asking for proof of vaccination, that's not necessarily saying you have to be vaccinated, just saying if you're not, uh, there may be a different set of rules for mm -hmm. those individuals mm -hmm. or different consequences. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I know that, uh, that's one kind of going in the side door about whether or not it's mandatory or not. Uh, but th there seems to be a push on right now. And, and I guess maybe part of the motivation for that, doctor, is is what we've been told from day one when the vaccine started earlier this year, is that the more people are vaccinated, the closer we get to, quote, unquote, herd immunity, uh, I, the better off we're all going to be. Yeah, I completely, I am, don't get me wrong, I am very strongly in support of vaccinated adults. Yeah, and just... I, I want to make sure that whatever we do has the intended benefit of actually increasing vaccination rates and not polarizing people and siloing them. Um, and, and, of course, we, we want to ensure that if we do this, that the, the net result is minimizing disease burden and minimizing hospitalizations. I would, I, I mean, I can't emphasize strongly enough to anybody listening that the vaccines have been remarkable at how well they have reduced the risk of ending up in hospital in an ICU or of dying of COVID. This is unquestionable. And that risk is for adults. And the highest risk is advanced age, obesity, poorly controlled diabetes, and poorly controlled hypertension. Not that nobody else is, is I mean, other adults may be at risk, but adults who have not been vaccinated, this, these have fundamentally changed what we are dealing with in terms of risk. If COVID becomes just a community virus with mild disease, then we have essentially won what we're at, what we needed to do. Your assessment, I guess, of the announcement that the minister made yesterday, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lutz, you were talking mm -hmm. about here, uh, where they've actually, uh, it's a pilot project that uh, they, they announced yesterday, uh, where they're going to be sending some uh, test kits home, some take-home test kits home mm -hmm. with a number of high school students in jurisdictions. Uh, our listeners over in the London area would know all about that because that's one of the boards that's going to be involved in the test case. Uh, I, I've seen mixed reaction to this some suggesting well you know vaccinations will be better for high school kids because you know that that's the shield that we're doing uh testing is is important is as important as it was a year ago uh well probably not i mean in the end at some point we have to have an exit strategy i mean we have to remember that we are aiming to eventually get to the other side of this so there will be a point at where we're going to say this is this is our our equilibrium. We we are now coexisting with COVID as yet another seasonal respiratory virus. I don't know that we're quite there. I, I actually really like the idea of take home tests in the sense of convenience. It'll definitely reduce the um, a, a lot of the pressures on on our testing assessment centers, our family physician offices, our ERs, because if you require testing and that ends up being at one of our assessment centers. That that actually is a big um, uh, pressure on our system. And it's a way of trying to gauge whether or not we even need to keep testing as vaccinations go up. Because if we see very little in school transmission, uh, then it, it would actually be incredibly reassuring to say, you know what, we're just not seeing it. We can stop testing in schools. Certainly, if you look at the testing we did in the spring in Ontario, 
Uh, we did uh, fif- over 56,000 asymptomatic tests, and we only had 411 positives then. Uh, the United Kingdom has been doing this, and in June, during the worst of their COVID um, delta wave, they only ha- they had less than 0.5% transmission school, so very low. And so if, if what by doing this kind of testing, we're able to show, you know what, we're actually okay, our kids are okay, and the schools are not showing a lot of transmission, that's actually very useful information, and I think it would be reassuring for people who are still nervous. An unintended consequence, but I think a consequence nonetheless about all this stuff and the preparations they're doing in the schools uh, is, uh, first of all, they're, they're working on HVAC systems for ventilation, which they should be doing anyway, even if there was no COVID. That's mm-hmm. not a bad thing to do. Uh, there's been a real uh, push right now for, hand, for not just hand hygiene, but hygiene in general. Uh, so even if we don't see any new cases, Doctor, I guess maybe maybe part of the silver lining might be uh, that's pretty good preparation as we head into fall, which is also heading towards flu season, isn't it? Absolutely. And if nothing else, I think what we learned the last 18 months is that, boy, do we need to invest in the infrastructure of our schools? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because really, like, are we really sending our kids to, you know, schools with no air conditioning when it's almost 40 degrees outside? Uh, and we always see seasonal spikes. And so, you know, I, I can't argue against good ventilation because who would argue against good ventilation? And quite frankly, hand washing is critical. I know at the beginning of this, I um I was seeing a teacher as a patient. I mean, it was an unrelated reason she was in. Uh, I was seeing her in my clinic, who made the comment that the soap would run out in the bathrooms at the schools halfway through the month, and they wouldn't get a new supply until the until the next month. I mean, that's it's hard to fathom that we would ration soap in a school. So I think yes, we have learned a lot about uh, improving the overall um, status of what's going on in our schools. Yes. Uh, and you'd like to think that that's going to continue going on. Uh, the test I case, sure as we mentioned, so. is for a period of time. Uh, in a perfect situation, I guess, they, they hopefully come to the same conclusion you were just uh, hypothesizing about that, hey, we don't need to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the anticipation that we're hearing from an awful lot of people is that cases are going to go up just because people are going to go back in, indoors in school environments and some of us into work environments too. Uh, and we're already, we're told, into a fourth wave. Are you concerned about how serious that could be? Well, one of the things that I think we've been trying to communicate, and I know the province has as well, which is why we're no longer reporting. If you look up the Ontario numbers, case numbers aren't the first thing you see anymore. It's hospitalizations mm-hmm. because we we are seeing a, a significant decoupling of cases and, and outcome. And, and again, it's hard to sort of, it, there's lots of shades of gray. We're not trying to get rid of COVID. We're trying to get rid of severe COVID for most people. Not very catchy kind of comment to make, but this is very much what's been seen in other jurisdictions with high vaccination rates. Hospitalizations will never be zero, but if we're at a very manageable level, then the case counts are no longer predictor of anything other than a respiratory virus in the community. And so it is a bit of a mind shift, but it's the cases in and of themselves are no longer be a predictor of anything. So Yes. Are we going to see cases go up? Very much. I, I think undoubtedly we will. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. Not if we've got our really, you know, and I've got the, the numbers in front of me, are really quite excellent vaccination rates. That is what's going to predict, uh, you know, basically that, that our hospital system will cope. And we're a strained hospital system. I mean, we've been dealing with this for a year and a half. Staff are tired. We have a lot of staffing shortages. And so, again, that to the degree that we can minimize the risk of being hospitalized, all I can say is please, if you haven't been vaccinated, and particularly if you're a vulnerable adult, please 
please get vaccinated. Yeah, I've talked to a number of people that are on waiting lists right now for surgeries that have been uh, postponed or canceled uh, yeah. because of this going on, and that, that number is yeah. getting larger, too. We haven't talked a lot about that, but I know, uh, you know, you talk to some of the frontline workers there, and they're very concerned about this, too. Uh, doctor, always so. always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time My with pleasure. us this morning. Thank you. Let's Take care. Dr. Martha Fulford, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the election itself. Uh, as we talked about on the show yesterday, uh, this is different. I know that a lot of people want to draw comparisons about, you know, the pandemic election they had in the States last November and this. One of the major differences is that... Uh, in the states, all 50 states run their own elections, even though it's a federal election. Uh, you know, New York has different rules than Wyoming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In this country, Elections Canada runs the whole show. And, uh, and it's been very effective uh, for a very long time. But there's a concern right now about, well, things are different uh, and the circumstances are different right now. And there's, a, a, I think, a thought-provoking op-ed piece in the, uh, the Globe and Mail. It's entitled, Can Elections Canada Keep Up with Democracy? Uh, one of the co-authors of that is uh, Peter McLeod. Peter is uh, a principal with MASLAP. And uh, uh, Peter, first of all, thank you for joining us. I'm glad you could be with us on the program today. Very glad to be able to talk with you about this. Well, you've talked and, and brought a few things into the in the piece here that I think a lot of us have been talking about anecdotally and individually, uh, and and I got the sense from uh, from reading the piece it's not as if you're saying, "Hey, this is outdated. Elections Canada is no longer effective," uh, but like anything else, uh, you either grow or you die, and and we haven't changed Elections Canada for a long time, have we? Well, well, that that that's a good place to begin. I mean, look, Canadians should take a tremendous amount of confidence in the integrity of our electoral system. Elections Canada is a prized jewel of our public institutions and it's respected around the world I, I think what we all kind of forget about when we go to the ballot box on election day is that they're running 20,000 of those polling stations across six time zones and they're processing about 20 million ballots in the space of 12 hours it's an extraordinary operation but the point that we're making in the article is that what about the what about the space between elections? Because we know democracies are being challenged from many different vantage points. There are disinformation campaigns that are being uh, state sponsored by China and by Russia. They're looking to upset um, the kind of social compact here in Canada and in other Western countries. And so the point of the article is to say, in addition to the great services that election. Canada provides, maybe we need to make a more concerted effort to ensure that Canadians are informed, engaged, empowered in the space between elections as well. Well, when you talk about the, the responsibilities here, uh, the, the efficacy of the election is, is part of the mandate, certainly, but so is security. And uh, the, uh, this is not, you know, the old cliche, this is not your grandfather's elections Canada. And the, I know your election, as you say, there are so many extraneous factors right now. Uh, we have to wonder, you know, do we have all the, 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 the defenses that we really need to, to have a safe and fair election? I, I, I think Canada is protected in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, all of the protocols run by a centralized elections agency, as you observed in the intro. It's not like we have 50 states or we have 10 provinces running their own systems and trying to stitch it together at the last moment. I, I, I think, look, a lot of people have also been talking about the promise of online voting. Frankly, right now, I'm quite pleased to see that we don't have online voting. I think there's something much more reliable about Canadians going in an old-fashioned way to a ballot booth, checking off a piece of paper, it being scanned, but none of the kind of uh, concerns that have arisen because of American-style voting machines. 
So I, I think the integrity of the electoral process is, um, is absolutely world-class, and Canadians should have a lot of confidence in that process. What we might have less confidence in, however, is the social media uh, that, of course, informs public opinion uh, and really colors the, the political debate. You know, some commentators have talked about Western democracies really being afflicted by the three P's, pessimism, growing populism, and greater polarization. At the end of the day, we may vote for different parties, but we all want to believe that more or less things are fair, systems are just, and when that confidence starts to break down, that's when we see societies really start to flip. Well, and we saw that, and again, I don't want to you know, continually compare what happened that last November in the States, but uh, once the integrity of the election and the electoral process is called into play, uh, you got major problems, and we saw that happen down there. And you're right, we, have, we haven't had those sorts of situations, uh, but we have had aberrations. I mean, there have been people that have tried to push the envelope when it comes to elections with what they do and, and the sorts of uh, messaging that they put out there. Uh, and, and, and Elections Canada is responsible for that. Now, what I loved about this, though, is and there's one line here that jumped out at me, and I think it goes to the point that you were just mentioning, Peter, uh, active democratic citizenship should not be a quadrennial exercise. In other words, we shouldn't just be thinking about elections every four years when there are elections. It, this is an ongoing thing, isn't it? Well, that's exactly it. And we can look to lots of other countries around the world for things that they do to keep citizens engaged. Let, let's not pretend that anybody's satisfied by going to that ballot booth every four years and then it's as though all policy decisions, you know, the, the kind of fanciful idea of a mandate that allows the government to to act with with full discretion on any range of issues you know modern governments consult their publics they consult their publics intensively and we see countries like taiwan where they're able to get not like 20 people out for a town hall meeting they're able to mobilize millions of people online to contribute to crowdsourcing important public policies and finding consensus that crosses party lines. We can look to Denmark, which has been very successful in tackling disinformation by creating secure online email communications with every citizen. So there's no question as to whether it's CRA texting you or not, or someone else is trying to spam you and pretend to be the government. You have a conduit with factual information. We see Belgium as a last example. Um, randomly selecting citizens to serve on parliamentary committees alongside the bloc and the NDP and the uh, liberals and the conservatives. So, you know, I think what we really need to be doing as a society faced with these threats is strengthening the connections between people and their parliaments and the public systems. The only way to do that is to actually get people involved in the work of governing between elections. Your last point about you know, a citizen appointees I found interesting because one of the criticisms against doing that at any point here in our Canadian uh, political system is, is you know everything around here is permeated with partisanship. You know, the government of the day appoints the, the judges, they appoint the, whatever it's going to be. Elections Canada is by definition is, is arm's length and not influenced by government. Uh, it sounds to me, and I think you made a very strong case for it in the op-ed piece, Peter, uh, that that should be the body that actually should take over those sorts of things. In other words, they already have that reputation and a stellar reputation for being independent uh, and why not let that you know be the, the protocol and the vehicle to use uh, to get citizens more involved in that well it, it could be one option um, you know I, I think at the end of the day the integrity of election Canada is is has to be the primary concern what we called for in the piece was the creation of a new entity 
uh, called Democratic Services Canada. And you could imagine Election Canada maybe being folded in, still retaining its independence as an agency. But the purpose of Democratic Services Canada to, to strengthen the conduit of factual information to Canadians, um, to do things like we saw with the, the incredible response from Canadians around the Syrian refugee crisis. One of the paradoxes to me of, of this public health emergency is we managed to mobilize more than 100,000 Canadians in these terrific groups of five that settled an additional 30-some thousand Syrian Canadians. This is, this is acting at scale. This is relying on your public to help solve important problems. Here during the pandemic, 50,000 Canadians volunteered to support the federal government in contract tracing. None of them have ever been called up. So these are the kinds of civic challenges that I think we need a dedicated entity um, to, to, to help mobilize and, and activate when appropriate. But then, as I described in Belgium and Denmark and Taiwan, there are lots of innovative ways we could be tapping into, um, really, the, the phrase, the wisdom of the crowd, the wisdom of the public, to reach greater consensus on some of the complex issues we face as a society. Well, because you know as well as I do, I mean, September 20th is Election Day, and I'm assuming, Peter, probably by about September 25th, we're going to be having the discussion, why can't we get people out to vote? What's the matter with the voter turnout? How do you get people engaged? Well, I, I think that's the answer to it, and what you're describing here is if they're engaged all through the process and all through those four years, not just during an election campaign, uh, they're certainly going to be more motivated, more, more motivated to get involved in the election and actually go and vote because they've been part of that process. I think that's exactly it. But, you know, there are also some really low-hanging fruit options if we were serious about raising voter turnout. You know, the, the scandal isn't the fact that somebody gets elected with only, you know, a government with 45% of the vote. It's the fact that only 20% of eligible voters even cast a vote for that person who then forms government. You know, if we were serious about it, we would drop the voting age tomorrow, uh, and we would probably lower it um, right into elementary school or below. We should have the opportunity to practice voting while we're in school at least once or twice. We should put um, electoral days on weekends. It should be a two or three day affair. There are lots of things that other countries have tried short of mandatory voting, which is often invoked uh, as a solution that would um, raise voter turnout. It's not the mystery we pretend it to be. And it's, you're right. I mean, some people look at this and say, well, that's, that's a Herculean task. We don't, shouldn't even tackle that because there's just too many things that could go wrong. And, and I know mandatory voting is something that I know Australia does that. But, I mean, well, we don't want to go there. You get into all these other things like that. Uh, but there, you're right. There are some things we can do. The problem is, and we saw this happen, you know, when the, when the Trudeau government got elected. I, you know, I still remember the debate where uh, then-candidate Trudeau said that this is going to be the last election Canada wages uh, with the first-past-the-post. Well, that didn't quite work out. Uh, because it got political, and, and we really kind of have to take it out of the hands of the politicians and, and get the public engaged in what sort of changes should happen. Well, this is where Canada was really an innovator, and, and I know it, it, it produces a, a very strong uh, reaction, but in both British Columbia and Ontario in 2004 and 2006, we actually held exemplary public processes. They were called citizens' yep. assemblies. Rather than having a kind of blue-ribbon select commission of the great and the good, like jury service, we sent out 100,000 letters. We asked people if they'd give us not an afternoon on a Sunday to talk about something, but to give us 18 weekends of their time over a year at a time when people think folks are apathetic and disinterested politics. And we weren't asking them to talk about health care, but something as obscure as electoral reform. You know, 
we had like 7% response rates, which translated to between seven and 10,000 people all volunteering for this. They came up with good recommendations around electoral reform. It failed at referendum, though in BC, of course, it received more than what the Campbell government got, which returned them to a majority government. So there's a paradox for you. But, you know, the, the issue of, of the Citizens' Assembly is that this is a process that has now been replicated more than 40 times across Canada to deal with lots of uh, delicate regulatory matters. And it's been taken up globally. So we see Ireland, we see France with its climate assembly, we see um, England, Scotland, Wales, Denmark, Germany, all using a made-in-Canada process to deal with issues like electoral reform. It failed here because we, you know, we thought, we'll take... We'll, we'll take 100 people, we'll give them a chance to learn about a really complex issue, but then we're going to take it to a ballot box where folks quite reasonably haven't had more than a few minutes to think about this thing. So I'm not sure whether they're good processes to conjoin, but you're absolutely right that ultimately electoral reform is a really important way of ensuring that all votes count and that more people um, feel impelled to uh, see that their voice is heard. You're singing to the choir here because we've been talking about <laughs> variations on this for a while. And by the way, if I could you know, just pick one from the list that you just mentioned, uh, weekend elections make all kinds of sense to me. I don't know why there's such a rush to say, okay, it's 8 o'clock, everything has to close down. Well, I couldn't get there in time. Uh, they do this in Europe. Uh, you know, The election goes over a couple of days, and it's no big deal that you don't have a winner on election day. You have to count the votes. Big, that's, the, that's democracy. Exactly. I get that. I mean, we have this propensity in this country for federal elections anyway to hold them on Monday. Well, everybody's in a lousy mood on Monday to begin with, uh, for, no matter what the weather's like and everything else. So it's, it's going to be very difficult to overcome that. Uh, but I'm hoping this op-ed piece is actually going to uh, be a catalyst for the, uh, a conversation about this. i, I got about a minute left. i got to ask you, uh, based on the research and, and even anecdotally that you've done, is there an appetite to, to even consider these sorts of changes? Well, I, I can tell you the appetite is actually with the public. You know, yep. I, I mentioned a moment ago that there is this kind of myth of apathy, which whenever I hear a politician ever kind of go there, I think, talk about blaming the victim, right? It's actually <laughs> the responsibility of politicians and political parties. That's why they exist, to mobilize, inform, organize. We have to see the public as a resource, one that we're not just trying to, like, draw on, but actually nourish. And I think too much political activity really is looks at the wider public as a risk to, to manage. When we start employing some of the ideas that we described in the piece, lo and behold, you know, um, you're, you discover that all your friends and neighbors, in fact, are good, generous, and pro-social people, and that they're looking for a way to connect and, and give something back and be informed. I think it's an obligation of government to see that as part of its role. Can Elections Canada keep up with democracy? So I still want the webpage, I think, for the Globe and Mail. People, check it out when you get a couple of minutes. It's a good read. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for the work that you've done on this, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Peter McLeod, uh, principal with uh, Mass LLP and one of the co-authors of the piece that you can read in the Globe and Mail. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Busy day uh, for campaigning from uh, all the leaders. Uh, Justin Trudeau's mention was in Hamilton yesterday morning on a campaign stop and uh, then had to leave to attend, well, 
virtually anyway, a G7 meeting, and it all had to do with Afghanistan. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden basically uh, reiterated that he is sticking to his August 31st deadline for completing a risky airlift of Americans, endangering Afghans and others out of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Now, the Taliban now says that it needs those Afghans at home and are going to use their specialized knowledge for the good of the country. Those are their words. Reporter Martha Raddatz uh, says the Taliban's words, not so credible. They really can't. They simply can't take the Taliban at their word. And many of those people were under Taliban rule 20 years ago, and they know what can happen, especially those Afghans who work for the Americans. They are in peril. And how they get out, if they are not out beyond that August 31st deadline, is simply unknown. Well, it's uh, it's frightening, actually, especially when you juxtapose that, uh, as Martha mentioned in her report, about some of the comments that uh, Taliban officials are making about uh, how they're going to treat those citizens. Uh, you may remember about a week and a half or so ago, they suggested that uh, there would be no uh, repercussions for the people that worked uh, for the Canadians, UK, or uh, American soldiers. And now we are told that they're going door-to-door looking for those people. Uh, Canada has a role to play here, and Canada has been criticized, as most of the other countries involved in uh, the airlift have been criticized. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that and our responsibilities here. Pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Things are different. The numbers are a little bit better. I just saw Minister Sejan talking about over a thousand Afghans have now uh, been relocated to Canada at this stage. Uh, that's not as, as as dire as it was a while ago. But maybe your assessment, Professor, is, is the Canada's role in this and what we've done so far. Well, it's it, it's of course a a humanitarian tragedy, and uh, I think the Canadian government has an obligation to do whatever it can to remove people. Afghanis who have supported uh, the Canadian mission uh, to the best of their ability. Uh, beyond that, I, I think uh, the the war had to end. The war was not a war that anyone, that uh, we were going to win. Uh, by we, I mean the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a fool's errand from beginning to end. <sighs> And the president's tried to, to talk around that, and I'm sure you've seen his comments over the last couple of days uh, when questioned about this, suggesting that, look, at the two purposes that they went in there for initially was to get bin Laden and to, and to defang al-Qaeda, and he says we've accomplished both those things. He says nation-building was not part of the original mission. Uh, I guess 20 years after the fact, you can make a statement like that, but there was an expectation, though, wasn't there, Professor, that when you go that route and go down that road of saying, okay, we want to educate girls, we want to have uh, fair and free elections, uh, that's nation building by any other name. So they, they walked right into it, and they, they seemed quite happy doing it until they all of a sudden they wanted to pull the plug out. You know, the the hard right militaristic uh, wing within uh, American politics, and that's some uh, Republicans and some Democrats, oh, yeah, yeah. has always, always, always uh, embraced nation building as a cover for pursuing military solutions. You know, the, the sad thing, the tragedy of this is, for both Afghanis as well as for all of the military personnel who gave up their lives or suffered traumatic injuries in the Afghani war, is that it's just like a broken record. We heard the same rhetoric, the same strategizing 50 years ago, except it was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And the same arguments, the same willingness to or treasure into their, in, into the country in an attempt to 
basically prove that we could accomplish through hard power what no one had been able to accomplish. It was, uh, it didn't work in Vietnam. It was never going to work here. And I think now what you'll see, and what Biden, I think, is trying to deflect, is the same thing that happened after the war in Vietnam. Uh, you, you got this myth rise out of the ashes of the, the war, that America's military was betrayed by its politicians, and that gave rise to Americans were left behind and stabbed in the back, the military was. And, you know, I would tell you and, and your audience, expect to see in the next 24 months uh, version 2.0 of Rambo. Poor American soldier left behind in Afghanistan, carrying on the fight. A man of decency and character, of simple beliefs and love of God and country. And you'll see the enduring images transformed, transported from 1975 Vietnam to 2022 Kabul. And I guess... If you get a look at this from a historical perspective, uh, Professor, this this even predates Vietnam. I mean, this is manifest destiny, destiny, isn't it? Where they just the American uh, attitude seemed to be, and it goes all the way back, I guess, to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, is we're the, we're the world's police force. If there's somebody go- screwing things up here, we'll go in there and we'll set it right, and we'll you know we'll we'll give them a better way of life. We'll give them democracy. Uh, and I don't know if you can count even on one hand the number of times they've gone in there and it's worked. Uh, you're right. The 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 kind of uh tendency to engage in unilateralism, to say, ah, we know what we're doing and we don't need your approval or we don't need your support or we don't need to even talk to you about it, has been a feature of, of American foreign policy, you know, for the last 80 years. There's no doubt about that, and you could push it back, as you've suggested, much further than that. Uh, except, you know, but the last 80 years we've had an international institution, the United Nations, that was ostensibly designed to take care of that kind of thing. And, of course, you know, Americans have pretty much ignored the United Nations unless it really, really suited them. A comment I, I saw among many, of course, about this the other day, and, and to just assess what's going on, and I agree with you, this is a, a humanitarian tragedy. Uh, but it, as one commentator mentioned the other day on one of the new shows I was watching on Sunday, uh, he said, look, at, you, you criticize the Americans and the Canadians and the U.K. and everything else for this, and, it, and the criticism is justified, but this was never going to end well. He says, let's, let's cut to the chase here. Uh, the minute you said we're pulling out here and this is the date we're leaving, you know darn well what was going to happen, and, and you should have anticipated that when you know when the Taliban heard that, they just figured, okay, we're wrapping up activities. That's the date we're taking over the capital, October 31st, September 1st. Well, they, they even move faster than that now. But there was a certain inevitability to this, wasn't there, Professor? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, once the American announcement had uh, was was made public, then you know the many, and I would emphasize, many officials within the Afghani uh, regime who, in fact, were sympathetic to the Taliban very quickly made side deals, including a number of state governors mm-hmm. who essentially uh, handed over their provinces to to the Taliban in return for their own safety and security and uh, cash that was laying around. Uh, this was, you're right, never going to end well. This was a war that they weren't willing to fight. So how in God's name did we think you could, we could fight for them and win? 
let's talk. And, and the, the, I guess the thing that I guess bothers an awful lot of people is is the legitimizing of of the Taliban, not so much Al Qaeda, but of the Taliban uh, by negotiating with them. Uh, you know, the the treaty that Donald Trump signed with the Taliban. Uh, uh, you know, we can dissect that and talk about the you know the impact that's had here. Uh, but it 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 made them a, in their minds anyway. It made the Taliban a legitimate political entity. Well, what what it what it certainly prefigured was that. The Americans were going to withdraw. I mean, the, the Trump so-called uh, agreement with with the Taliban, in fact, did declare that America would withdraw would withdraw all troops. It did not require the Taliban to tone, uh, dial down their own military campaign. Uh, if you were an Afghani official, even then you could see, I should start reaching out to the other side. I should start making arrangements because the curtain's coming down. I, we mentioned uh, in the beginning of our conversation here about the comment that the, uh, the Prime Minister made yesterday that Canadian forces who are on the ground there trying to organize this thing may stay past October 31st. Uh, that was 24 hours ago. There was a quick response, I guess, from the Taliban, wasn't there, Professor, that simply said, uh, no, we're shutting this down. Uh, Bob Fife reports in the Globe and Mail this morning that I guess Canadian officials have now rethought that concept and said, uh, yeah, we're probably wrapping it up here. We'll be gone by the end of the month, uh, which pretty much shows that it's the Taliban who's calling the shots here now. Well, it, what it shows is that once uh, the Americans finally acknowledged that they just weren't going to sink any more treasure or blood into this enterprise, yeah, it's over. And, and you know, it's, it's a, there's a bit of irony here. It's a bit cheeky uh, of, 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 of the Brits and the French uh, uh, to, to tell the Americans to, to keep at it when it was the Americans who were pouring all the treasure <laughs> and much of the blood into the fight. So, uh, yes, it, 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 there was not going to be any other alternative kind of outcome to this. And, and we, we're stuck with the circumstance that we have here. And uh, you're right. I mean, the stories are going to continue because there is no way that they're going to get people out, the people out there that they had promised and committed to get out there. And, and you know, I, I don't know who's on these planes right now. It's, as we mentioned at the beginning, the numbers have started to increase, and that's fabulous. Uh, but the tens of thousands of people that are trying to get out of the country right now, including many people that assisted uh, those allied forces, uh, you hate to think of what's going to happen on, on September 1st when all of a sudden this whole thing is shut down you know i i i, I guess from, from a historical perspective i'd be a little more circumspect uh there, there was a, a a similar kind of anguish in in 75 in, in vietnam and and that you know foretold of of just absolute uh, uh bloodshed across you know southeast asia as as the 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 viet cong and and the north vietnamese army exacted uh, retribution from, from those who had resisted them and who had not supported them. Uh, you know, the truth is, it, it was a little more nuanced than that, and, and there wasn't some massive uh, bloodbath that, that occurred in Vietnam. I don't think that will happen here either. If anything, Afghanistan is a much more fragile and fractious society than Vietnam was. And the various minority populations uh, that make up the Afghani population, uh, the Taliban are going to have to come to terms with how do they deal with all of them now that they are the government. And uh, that's going to lead them to, I think, to a degree, modify their behavior. It's Not already for some philosophical kind of uh, commitment to it, but because 
you know, we, we, we just secured the country. Do I really want to trigger a, another set uh, or another civil war within the country? Um, and I don't think I do. It's also changed the attitude, I guess, of a number of the other leaders, specifically, I guess, in the G7. And we saw that reflected, I think, in the comments yesterday, didn't we, Professor? Uh, when this was happening and, and when, the, when the Taliban was, was overrun, running in, in Kabul, uh, you know, the Prime Minister here, uh, Boris Johnson in the UK, and, and President Biden all said, well, this, you know, they're a terrorist organization. There's no way we're ever going to recognize these people as the legitimate government. Uh, some of them came out of that meeting yesterday basically saying, well, it depends on how they act. Uh, so there's already been a softening of that attitude, and maybe, again, that sense of inevitability. Well, I, I, I think so. And I think, you know, a, a, a recognition, you know, that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily agree with the approach we are taking and have taken uh, to Afghanistan and to the Taliban. And the reality is that once the Taliban uh, officially, if you like, take control in Afghanistan, you will begin to see countries reopening relations slowly perhaps and then maybe a bit discreetly no big announcements but you will see countries begin to once again engage with the new government as they see it in afghanistan and life will re go on what about alliances if in fact this does and i, I agree with you i think that there's there's every reason to believe the Taliban is going to stay in power in, in, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, there may, they may have you know, a puppet government there, but they were going to be pulling the strings to that for sure. Uh, the first place they reach out to is certainly not going to be the United States, uh, certainly not Russia. There's still, still a great deal of, of animosity there. Is, is China uh, the first phone call that they make and say, let's, let's talk? Well, I think you know, the, the, they'll be making a lot of calls around the same time. Uh, I, I think... Uh, for different reasons, India and Pakistan will 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 step forward and begin to engage with with that government. I I do think the the Chinese will. The Chinese have uh, like to get, demonstrate their the you know their beliefs that they don't like to interfere in the internal relations of other states, and this is how we're going to approach the Taliban as the rightful rulers and engage with them on that basis. So I think you'll see countries, I think a number of neighbors will engage with them. You know, certainly neighboring states like uh, Kazakhstan and, 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 and Tajikistan will um, have it feel a need to engage with them in part because they share a border, in part because they don't want a flow of, of uh, terrorists within their own, moving in, in and around their own countries um, and fomenting trouble. So I think neighboring states will engage um, pretty quickly after the, uh, the end of uh, the conflict. And soon thereafter, the regional powers, the Pakistans, the Indias, the Chinas, will also begin to engage. I've got about a minute left here, and I appreciate your time today, Professor. But one last question I want to ask you about, and it's about the money. It's always about the money. Uh, during these last 20 years and previous to that, in fact, a number of countries, including Canada, have uh, have sent a substantial amount of money in foreign aid uh, to Afghanistan. Uh, do they do they rethink that? And I guess the point I, I can use as an example here is New Zealand, which is doing the same sort of thing. And they got a thank you note from the Taliban saying, thank you for your contribution to the Taliban. Well, that was not the intention. It was supposed to, to go to, to relief aid, of course, for Afghanistan, and I know we're doing it through third parties, through international agencies, uh, but it's a substantial amount of money. Does Canada and the other G7 nations rethink that policy now? Well, I don't think there's any question. They will rethink it. Uh, I, I mean, there are always doubts 
uh, within those governments and even within the NGO community about how much of the money was actually going to the purposes that it was intended to go to, uh, that doubt will now be replaced by a belief that that won't happen. It'll simply go into the coffers of, of, of government run by the Taliban who will use it for their own purposes. So I think very much so there will be a, a rethink and I think a dialing down of the amount of aid uh, flowing into that region. Well, and we saw that, didn't we, when a number of the the territorial leaders uh, evacuated their posts, as you mentioned, uh, when the Taliban started running over, and uh, they cut deals, and there were a, a number of bags of silver, I'm sure, that accompanied them as well. I mean, that's why a lot of that money apparently went. Uh, a very fluid situation. Always great to get an update and get your perspective on this, Professor. Thanks you so much for the time today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Professor Wayne Petrosi from Ryerson University uh, talking about the uh, very troubling situation in Afghanistan. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.